Blog Talk Radio. What's your definition of greatness? I think the definition of greatness is to inspire the people next to you. My parents were, were great. You know, growing up, you know, they instilled in me the importance of imagination, of curiosity. And understanding that, okay, if you want to accomplish something, I'm not just going to sit here and say, yes, you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can, but you have to also put in the work to get there. You grow up as a kid thinking that all things are possible if you put in the work to do it. You, know, you grow up having that fundamental belief. My father uh, was really influential at a really critical time where I, you know, I had a summer where I played basketball when I was like 10 or 11 years old. And here I come playing and I don't score one point the entire summer. I scored not a free throw, not a nothing, not a lucky shot, not a breakaway layup, zero points. And I remember crying about it and being upset about it. And my father just gave me a hug and said, listen, whether you score zero or score 60, I'm going to love you no matter what. That is the most important thing that you can say to a child. It gives me all the confidence in the world to fail. But to hell with that, I'm scoring 60. From there, I just went to work. I just stayed with it. I kept practicing, kept practicing, kept practicing. I think that's when the idea of understanding a long-term view became important. Because I wasn't going to catch these kids in a week. I wasn't going to catch them in a year. right? So that's when I sat down and said, okay, this is going to take some thought started creating a menu of things. Mm. When I came back the next summer, I was a little bit better. Open shots, not miss open shots. Be able to shoot it with speed because those kids are so much more athletic. So it's a simple thing of math. If you want to be a great player, if you play every single day, two, three hours, every single day, over the course of a year, how much better are you getting? If you're obsessively training two, three hours every single day over a year, over two years, you make quantum leaps. Show up every single day, do the work. They're looking at me as if, okay, this kid's soft, right? He's from the suburbs of Philadelphia. They felt like they could try to be physical or try to intimidate me and do all this other stuff, which they couldn't. Now I'm saying, okay, well, you're trying to attack me. How am I going to attack you? One of the things I would do is, while everybody would be at the cafeteria work, you know, eating and doing all this other stuff, I'd just go back to the gym. Yeah, I may be from the suburbs, but you're not going to outwork me. Right, look at things, things at their smallest. A lot of times the game starts moving really fast. But if you train yourself to watch hours and hours of film, the game's not moving that fast anymore. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's an obsessiveness that comes along with it. You want things to be as perfect as they can be. Understanding that nothing is ever perfect. But the challenge is try to get them as perfect as they can be. So how can we teach our children what it means to work hard? Well, you do it through training. Right? So when I get up in the morning, my daughter goes with me. 4 a.m., my 15-year-old goes with me. It becomes a daddy-daughter thing. Through that process, she understands the value of hard work. So it's through those behaviors um, um, is where I find the motivation to mm. do it. Well, what does losing feel like to you? Uh, it's exciting because it means you have different um, ways to get better. There are certain things that you can figure out 
that you can take advantage of, right? Certain weaknesses that were exposed. Mm. There are answers there if you just look at them. It's a constant process. It's exciting when you win, it's exciting when you lose because the process should be exactly the same. The hardest thing is to face that stuff. I think it's the fear of, of starting anew. When you play for 20 years, I play for 20 years, you reach a certain level, you're like, okay, wait a minute, I have to start again at the base of a mountain and try to climb the top of this mountain. First of all, what mountain am I climbing? I don't even know like, what the hell am I going to be doing. The thing that helped me actually was hurting my Achilles because that forced me to sit there and say, okay, the day could be today that your career is over. First question I asked, which is the wrong question, is what's the biggest industry I can get into? I said, okay, stop thinking of it that way. You're thinking of it the wrong way. Why did you start playing basketball? Because I loved it. All right, what do you love to do? Oh, I love to tell stories. Mm. All right. Let's do that. I think stories is what moves the world. Nothing in this world moves without story. And so I think that is the root of everything. And if we're going to try to make the world a better place, story is the right place to start. Quote from uh, one of my English teachers at Lower Marion named uh, uh, Mr. Fisk. He had a great quote that said, rest at the end, not in the middle. That's something I always live by. I'm not going to rest. I'm going to keep on pushing now. There are a lot of answers that I don't have, even questions that I don't have. But I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep going, and I'll figure these things out as you go, right? And you just continue to build that way. So that, I try to live by that all the time. Don't even think about changing the station. You're listening to The Bottom Line with your host, Joey L. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be a, an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent, and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. 
Even now my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed. The bitterness of men fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate. The unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery. Fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man. Not one man nor a group of men. But in all men. In you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines. The power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful. To make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world. A decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason. A world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite!
7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on the bottom line with Joey L. On Evolution Radio. Due process of law is one of those majestic, important but very difficult to define terms that appears twice in the Constitution. It appears in the Fifth Amendment and applies to the national government, and it appears in the Fourteenth Amendment, which applies to the state governments. In the context of law enforcement, by and large, what it means is we have to treat criminal defendants fairly. We have to give them notice of charges that are brought against them. We have to give them an opportunity to defend themselves. We typically have to give them all sorts of other procedural protections like the ability to subpoena witnesses in their favor and bring them into court. Uh, we have to have an impartial magistrate, impartial jury. Now, some of these specific protections appear elsewhere in the Constitution as well. For example, a lot of the trial protections appear in the Sixth Amendment. But the general concept of due process of law um, applies very much in the criminal context, and it's been used on a number of occasions to... Um, to invalidate various things the police have done. Defining due process is very difficult. Really, due process um, 
is similar to the beauty is in the eye of the beholder concept. That is, really, the due process clause means whatever a majority of the members of the Supreme Court say it means at any given time. And they can change their minds from time to time. In the late 19th century, what it meant was protecting people from economic regulation. You couldn't have minimum wage, you couldn't have maximum hours, working conditions sort of things, because that violated people's basic right to freedom of contract. In the 20th century, it got much more into personal rights, like uh, the right to privacy, like the right to abortion, the right to use birth control, the right to marry. And today, it's probably being used uh, in equal protection and due process are being used in areas like same-sex marriage and the rights of transgender people. So it really evolves with society. And that's really appropriate if you think about the Constitution and what effect it should have on society. That is, there's no great moral claim that the views of a group of people that met in 1789 and 1791 should govern our lives today. And if the meaning of the Constitution were static, then I think there would be much more of a need to amend the Constitution or even have a new constitutional convention. But the meaning of the Constitution evolves over time. And so more contemporary understandings of what are fundamental rights are brought into the constitutional meaning through the clauses like the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause, clauses that are vaguer, that aren't very specific about the structure and organization of the government. And so you get this sort of more contemporary understanding of what rights people ought to have. And that applies also in the law enforcement context, where what, is a, what, what might not have been considered an excessive punishment 200 years ago is now considered an excessive punishment, or what might not have considered a privacy right 200 years ago is now considered a privacy right. And so it's clauses like the Due Process Clause and other vague constitutional provisions allow for the sort of evolution of our understanding of rights and lets our Constitution stay fresh and relevant to a current situation. In the context of the Fifth Amendment, as I explain due process to police officers, it means that an encounter between the state and the citizen must be transparent. It must be con they must be consistent. It must reflect consistency. It must be fair. The citizen should have an understanding of what's happening to him or her. The citizen should have an opportunity to defend him or, self, him or herself, to respond to the encounter. And I think when, when you have, when an encounter is marked by those characteristics, there has been due process of law. It has been orderly. It has been pursuant to a scheme. It has not been capricious, and it has not been arbitrary. So due pro the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment is a constitutional articulation of our collective idea of fairness. So if the Constitution, at least constitutional criminal law, means anything, it means that a system of justice should be fair. So oftentimes people equate due process with a concept called fundamental fairness. And fundamental fairness exists on two registers. The first register is called substantive due process. That means the thing is, 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 is actually fair, substantively, that, 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 there were, that the process was not so corrupted that a person did not get a fair hearing, a fair trial. Now, the second register is procedural due process. 
Procedural due process means that there are these processes, like a trial, like preliminary hearings, uh, like all of the sorts of, uh, of things that lead up to a substantive determination of uh, guilt or acquittal. And that if there is a problem with the procedural due process as well, then that is a violation of the Constitution. Because the notion goes that it's, it's difficult to ascertain truth in some absolute medical, physical, metaphysical sense. That is to say, it's difficult to ascertain the truth in some absolute metaphysical sense. So we get at our notions of truth through processes which we think are fair processes. Now, there are many ways you can get at the truth. There was a time in American history where we did things like weight people's feet, put them in a well, and say, if they drown, God is telling us that they were guilty. If they're innocent, God will save them. That's one method of ascertaining the truth. Not my particular chosen method, but that's one method. Another way is to engage in all of these safeguards at trial. And the, the analysis is that it might not get to absolute truth all the time, but it's going to be pretty close. If you do A, B, C, and D, and you do them properly, then we're going to weed out the injustice. So that's the notion of procedural due process. And so the implication is that if you don't follow the procedures, then there's something unjust about the eventual conviction. Substantive due process is, is the guarantee that you will not be treated in a certain way, that th certain things won't happen to you. For example, um, I have a substantive due process right to bodily integrity. The state can't come along and chop off my hand. It doesn't make a difference why the state wants to do that. It doesn't make a difference what procedure the state uses before it decides to chop off my hand. I've got a substantive due process right to be free from excruciating pain, to be free from having my bodily parts amputated. So substantive due process tells the government there are certain things you cannot do no matter how much you want to do them, no matter how carefully you go about trying to do it. Well, there's no, there, there are no exceptions to the notion of, of due process. Due process, like every other term in constitutional law, is interpretive and highly contestatory. So what violates substantive due process? This is a big issue in constitutional law. So the notion is that a substantive, due, a substantive due process violation will be found where there is something that shocks the conscious, that is so antagonistic to our basic notions of fundamental fairness that it cannot stand. Now, so those are pretty words and flowery words, but the truth is the Supreme Court has not found a substantive violation in many, 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 many decades. Right? So the last substantive due process violation is the case that I learned when I was in law school in a case that I teach now, and it's called our, uh, Rochin versus California, and it's a, a case where a person was forcibly brought into a hospital and had their stomach pumped um, by doctors, uh, but against their will so that they would regurgitate drugs. And the court said, too much. That shocks the conscious. You can't just haul people in and, and do things to make them throw up all over the place to get 
some drugs. There may be more uh, humane ways to do it. Uh, one could let nature take its course. Eventually those, those drugs will come out uh, one way or the other, but to make people throw up or to engage in surgery and cut it out of people's a abdomens, that shocks the conscious. Uh, but the court hasn't really found much else to have shocked the conscious. Almost all due, processes, due process cases now fall on a procedural register. And courts, I think, are more apt to deal with procedural rules as opposed to stuff, substantive standards. So a standard is something like shocks the conscious, where a rule is something like, did you give the Miranda warnings? Yes, no. You have a much more clear answer. The basic requirement of due process in law enforcement, of course, is that the law enforcement has to respect whatever rights there are that are spelled out by state and local law and by federal law. So if there's going to be a procedure that's going to go on, then the, the, the uh, procedural rights have to be respected. But due process um, and similar co sorts of unclear clauses like unreasonable search and unreasonable seizure, for example, uh, are interpreted to protect against things like excessive force, their a requirement that, uh, that um, government give medical care to people that are in custody, whether it's uh, pre-arrest, after arrest, um, after conviction, those sorts of rights uh, um, that are related also to the Eighth Amendment, freedom of, from cruel and unusual punishment. All of those rights sort of work together to create a system of, of uh, proper treatment of people in the custody of the government. Don't even think about changing the station. You're listening to The Bottom Line with your host, Joey L. Hi, this is Kim from Khan Academy. Today I'm learning about the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. One of four amendments in the Bill of Rights that concerns the rights of the accused, the Sixth Amendment guarantees defendants in criminal cases the right to a speedy and public trial. To learn more about the Sixth Amendment, I sought out the help of two experts. Stephanos Bibas is a United States Circuit Judge for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. He's also a leading scholar of criminal procedure. Jeffrey Fisher is Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Supreme Court Litigation Clinic at Stanford Law School. So, Judge Bibas, in the case of the Bill of Rights, the framers were trying to prevent particular abuses of the government. So what was the historical background that led them to want to protect these rights in particular? In England in the late 17th and early 18th century, there was a series of treason trials, other political trials, and the king had done some things that bypassed the usual mode of trial in criminal cases. The Anglo-American system is known as the common law. It involves live testimony in open court before a jury of your peers. And the jury ultimately decides, did you do it? Were you blameworthy? Do you deserve the punishment? Well, the, the, the Crown had railroaded some of its political opponents, people like Sir Walter Raleigh, people accused in the Popish plots uh, during the strife between Catholics and Protestants. And some of these convictions were later understood to have been wrongful ones. And so the colonists in England and then in America insisted on protecting against various 
ways of diminishing or abridging the trial that would be speedy, that would be public, that would be before a jury, that would have an evenly matched prosecution and defense and would have an opportunity to to look the witness in the eye and, and confront him the way it was always done in England as opposed to on continental Europe. There is a varied history, primarily in England, um, uh, of certain periods of time where people were prosecuted in ways that the founders deemed uh, fundamentally unfair. Probably the most notorious example uh, was the Star Chamber. That was a moniker given to a king-run tribunal decades before the founding where people were picked up and arrested and then sentenced to criminal punishment and sometimes to death without ever having an opportunity to challenge the charges against them and sometimes not even knowing what the charges were against them. Uh, And so that kind of a travesty of justice and abuse of power uh, was probably the foremost thing in the framers' minds. This was partly for the benefit of the defendant or the accused. It also was very importantly about protecting the citizen's right to control criminal justice, that it wasn't the king who would do this and the king couldn't just let his royal officers off. So it's very important to to look at the Declaration of Independence. A, a bunch of the complaints in the Declaration are complaints that the king is bypassing these usual modes, that he's protecting his soldiers by a mock trial from punishment for murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of the states that he's depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, and that he has made the judges subject to his manipulation and pleasure because they don't have stable salaries. Uh, so the colonists were very suspicious of the, of the king's manipulation of criminal justice. So how does the Sixth Amendment inform how the U.S. legal system works today? Well, the first important thing to understand is that when the Sixth Amendment was drafted, uh, just like all the other first 10 amendments, uh, they applied primarily only to the federal government, not to state governments. Uh, But in the 60s and 70s, the Supreme Court uh, applied all of these rights one by one to the states. So now, because the rights apply to both the federal government and to state governments, uh, the Sixth Amendment applies every single time Uh, somebody is charged with a crime. And so that starts uh, with uh, uh, knowing what you're being charged with, uh, whether it's by uh, what's known as a grand jury indictment or some other method of accusing somebody of committing a crime. Uh, And it continues on with uh, the right to an an attorney to represent uh, the accused and goes all the way through the decision-making process with how the jury decides uh, whether to convict or not. Well, this is fascinating. There are a couple of things that I see in the Sixth Amendment that seem like they might be a little difficult to define, particularly the idea of a speedy trial. So what actually counts as speedy? Uh, The speedy trial component is not well defined. Uh, The the Supreme Court has ultimately said, well, we're going to balance a bunch of factors. How long is the delay? What's the reason for the delay? Has the defendant shown any prejudice from the delay? How long did it take after the defendant requested the speedy trial? And 
very rarely does the court actually throw out a case based on that. What happens more often is that the defendant makes a request and then judges really try to push the case along to be faster. So the court has turned it into really focusing on the defendant's interest in something fast. And that matters a lot when a defendant doesn't make bail and is being held in jail pending trial. Um, so those cases will go to trial in a matter of, of months. Uh, a case where someone is out on bail can easily take a, a year or, or two uh, before it ultimately proceeds to trial. What's speedy or what's reasonable in 1791 uh, might not be speedy or reasonable uh, in uh, 2017. Uh, so. What the courts have said with respect to speedy is uh, there's not a bright line rule, say, uh, one year, uh, five years, whatever it might be, that somebody has to be brought to trial after being charged. Uh, rather, what the court does is it considers uh, how diligently the prosecution has tried to pursue the case in light of other factors, such as the complexity of the case, whether the defendant himself uh, wants the case to go to trial soon or whether the defendant himself has agreed to certain delays or said that uh, he doesn't mind them uh, and, and whether there's prejudice that has occurred, which is a legal way of saying um, whether somebody's been uh, harmed or injured by the delay. Say, for example, a key witness has now died or fled the jurisdiction. So it's, it's flexible words like speedy, in essence, translate some measure of discretion and flexibility to the courts. Why is our legal process so much slower than it was in the 18th century? Okay, so that, that connects up to the second set of rights we've, we've, we've constructed around what makes something a public trial. And one of the main things there is the jury right. Uh, juries in the 18th century, we didn't have a jury selection process. The first 12 people who didn't know the plaintiff or the defendant or the victim or whoever it was, would be impaneled and they would serve all day and they'd hear all the cases that came that day. And you didn't have lawyers involved in most of these cases. Usually it was the victim against the defendant himself or herself. No lawyer speaking for either side. Uh, that was the norm. The defendant had a right to hire a lawyer, but usually couldn't afford it and didn't. And there weren't rules of evidence. There weren't complicated motions. There weren't technical jury instructions. So the trials themselves took, as I said, an hour, two hours. Pre-trial proceedings did not involve lots of legal motions because there were no lawyers to run them. The judges themselves often didn't have legal training. There were no law schools in America. So when you have a system like that, it's not that cumbersome. There's very little incentive to bypass it. And you don't have professional lawyers who are looking to get this case done with and get on to the next case, uh, or who have seen enough cases that they can bargain back and forth and strike a bargain for this case that's about where the previous cases came out. So you, you didn't have an incentive for plea bargaining. It wasn't slow enough. You didn't have the experts who it would take to run plea bargaining. And you didn't have the, you know, the lack of investment in your own case that makes plea bargaining possible or that the technical rules. Um, so these cases actually all did go to juries and the expectation was they all would go to juries and the jury right wasn't, it wasn't just a right of a defendant. This happened in every case because the public had a right to, to do justice itself as well as seeing justice done. Oh, I have so many questions about this. So for one thing, do you think our current system is an improvement on this older system of juries and not so much plea, plea bargaining? And 
Also, why is there so much plea bargaining today? Uh, at the time of the founding, uh, there were no deals to be made short of a full trial. That's a huge contrast with today, where over 90% of criminal cases in this country are not resolved by trial, but rather by what's called a plea bargain, which is a defendant coming in and saying, uh, look, I will plead guilty to a lesser offense uh, or to the same offense you're charging, but with a guarantee of lesser punishment, uh, as long as you don't um, require me to go through a full trial. And so the idea is, is that because the system has grown so large uh, and there are so many cases, uh, that it's a relief to the prosecution and the court system not to have to have a trial in every case. And the benefit to the defendant is that he gets a slightly better deal or, or is able to plead to a lesser crime. Over the course of the 19th century, prosecutors are really taking over most of these cases. It goes from a few percent to the, to the lion's share of cases. And then defense lawyers get hired more and more to counteract that. Well, once you have prosecutors and defense lawyers on both sides, and the Sixth Amendment guarantees you the right to hire a defense lawyer, that's how it's understood in the 18th and 19th centuries. The prosecutors and defense lawyers develop rules of evidence, and they develop procedures and jury instructions, and they argue motions. And so they get more active, and the judge gets more passive or reactive. So the judge isn't pushing the case along as much, and the prosecutor and defense lawyer are slowing it down. Now, that seems like it makes it fairer, but once it gets to a certain point of being slow, the prosecutors want to get rid of the cases. They have too many of them. The judges, they have a bunch of civil cases they need to get rid of. And so the prosecutors and the judges and the defense lawyers all get together and find ways to bargain the case away rather than spending now its days on each case for trial. So from their point of view, it makes sense. They have a faster system and everyone goes home happy and the prosecutor can pursue more cases and the defendant gets a lighter deal, but the prosecution makes sure there's some conviction and sentence. But from the point of view of the public, the public doesn't see justice done and the public doesn't trust these plea bargains. But at the end of the day, what the defense lawyer is mostly doing is not making sure there's a speedy and public trial, but bargaining the 95% of cases away before there's a trial. Uh, what happens if the defendant can't afford a legal counsel? The, the, the history of the right to counsel is actually one of the more interesting components of the Sixth Amendment because uh, many of the components have deep roots in the history of England and so were rights that Englishmen enjoyed uh, for many, many years before they were brought over to the colonies and became part of our Constitution of the United States. Uh, the right to counsel is a little bit different in that respect. Uh, Criminal defendants in England and in other countries around the time of, the, of our founding often did not have a right to counsel of any kind, whether they could pay for it or not. And so this was a bit of an innovation on the, fact of the, on the part of the framers, recognizing that uh, all the other rights they were identifying to defend yourself in court uh, might not amount to much if you didn't have expert assistance, or at least the right to obtain expert assistance. So you described a lot of changes to how our legal system works over the years. What do you think would have surprised the framers most about how our legal system works today? I think they would have been shocked that a system that was meant to slow down and check governmental power and protect overreaching and protect the people's role has been so subverted that the people are involved in a few percent 
of cases. They designed a system that's it's slower and less efficient by design than the criminal justice system of continental Europe because they were worried about the king and the crown pushing pushing around citizens and, and abusing their power. They wanted grand juries to authorize every criminal charge. Well, we've largely gotten around that in most cases. They wanted petty juries to ensure that every prosecutor's charge was justified and that the legislature's criminal laws weren't being applied too broadly. And again, prosecutors now have so many threats and tools and sentences that they can make almost everybody give up their jury trial rights. Um, but the framers also weren't dealing with the volume of cases we're talking about, and they weren't focused primarily on the violent crimes. The federal crimes they were dealing with were seditious libel, criticizing the government, violations of the revenue laws. So it's also fair to point out that they did not expect that these rights were mainly going to be limitations that, that benefited uh, people in rape and murder cases. It, a lot of these protections are mainly designed to, to make sure that the innocent people get, get vindicated against unjust charges. And they might be a little bit surprised that almost all the litigation is, is by people who may be factually guilty. The next thing that would have surprised the framers a great deal, I think, uh, is the role of the jury uh, today. Um, the, the jury trial right mentioned in the Sixth Amendment is actually one of the only things mentioned twice in the Constitution. The right to a jury trial is actually mentioned in the body of the Constitution itself uh, in Article 4. Uh, and then it's mentioned again in the Sixth Amendment. And the reason why is because the jury were truly the people's check on the court system and in particular on uh, the prosecutorial power. Uh, so serving on a jury um, to the framers uh, was an honor. It was an act of, uh, of, of deep political participation and meaning um, in a way that we joke about jury service today as being something of a nuisance. They viewed it as, you know, almost as important as voting for the president on election day. By guaranteeing speedy public trials by jury and due process of law, the Sixth Amendment ensures that citizens, not the government, control criminal justice. But today, as Professor Fisher and Judge Beavis note, the framers might be surprised to learn that due to the rise of plea bargaining, only a small percentage of cases go to trial by jury, circumventing this process. To learn more about the Sixth Amendment, visit the National Constitution Center's Interactive Constitution and Khan Academy's resources on U.S. government and politics. A question to President Trump. Obama administration under the rebalance to Asia that have emphasized Asia, but China is taking hardline stance in South China Sea as well as China Sea, and North Korea has went on on the missiles and nuclear development. So some countries in Asia are concerned over commitment of United States in Asia. So against this backdrop. As was mentioned earlier, for the Trump administration, for the situations in Asia, how would you respond to the increasing difficulty here? And uh, President, uh, you have uh, repeatedly stated about China uh, taking on uh, the, uh, the currency, uh, foreign exchange policies, which are not good for the United States. Do you think that, that uh, eventually uh, it will change in the future? I had a very, very good conversation, as most of you know, 
yesterday with the president of China. It was a, a very, very warm conversation. I think we are on the process of getting along very well, and I think that will also be very much of a benefit to Japan. So we had a very, very good talk last night and uh, discussed a lot of subject. It was a long talk, and we are working on that as we speak. We have conversations with various representatives of China. I believe that that will all work out very well for everybody, China, Japan, the United States, and everybody in the region. Uh, as far as uh, the currency devaluations, I've been complaining about that for a long time. And I believe that we will all eventually, and probably very much sooner than a lot of people understand or think, we will be all at a level playing field. Because that's the only way it's fair. That's the only way that you can fairly compete in trade and other things. And we will be on that field, and we will all be working very hard to do great for our country. But it has to be fair, and we will make it fair. I think the United States is going to be an even bigger player than it is right now by a lot when it comes to trade. A lot of that will have to do with our tax policy, which you'll be seeing in the not-too-distant future. We'll have an incentive-based policy, much more so than we have right now. Right now, we don't even know. Nobody knows what policy we have. But we're going to have a very much incentive-based policy. We're working with Congress, working with Paul Ryan, working with Mitch McConnell. And I think people are going to be very, very impressed. We're also working very much, and this has a lot to do with business, on health care, where we can get great health care for our country at a much reduced price, both to the people receiving the health care and to our country, because our country is paying so much. And Obamacare, as you know, is a total and complete disaster. So we're going to end up with tremendous health care at a lower price. And I think people are going to be extremely happy. Difficult process, but once we get going, and as you know, Tom Price was just approved a few hours ago. So we finally have our secretary, and now we get down to the final strokes. I don't even know what's going on no more. I don't even know what's happening, man. There ain't no answers. I'm gonna figure some shit out, though, yeah. One years past the 27 club It's like I went back into my past And then I set it up Robert Johnson, Winehouse, and Morrison Found where heaven was Heaven on earth This shit is magic with no fairy dust Home of the gully gangs And the gruesome and the scary stuff I told my brother, jump fuck them They gon' go through hell with us They don't have a history in the streets That compare with us Hood niggas, they wanna be us Thugs in the state regions Only thing undefeated is time 
second is the internet, number three is this rhyme Before security, my dog had to sneak in the nine God must be on my side, I had to eat and provide My winning streak is divine I told son, leave the streets are behind Don't let them hype you with slow run, beat, cheat in the grind Dog, I'm telling it like it is You gotta deal with the consequence When you running the niggas' cribs, nigga, you better be ready to sit Dope dealers, street hustlers, pop cases Throw dice, all pavement, cop chases Big gamblers, scully, high faces Gang wars, hot spots, police raided Left us speechless Left us speechless Down on his luck, rapper Betty Broker The arrogance of a crackhead, mad at a weed smoker Or a pill taker who hated the steel wine drinker A killer who used a gun to hate on a knife swinger Aight, I get it, it's who the lit is, we in competition Y'all did it first to me to death, I got a proposition You and your brother stop plotting on each other, plot on millions Educate yourself, find some different areas of interest Spread your bets out, double down on what's working Then you double up, hands on your paper They send the hate no matter what you touch Honestly, I'm speechless Spot of grease, 20 pointers on a chain, I freaked it Long chair in the hood, sitting comfortably I must be insane, giving you bars, running companies I'm done with the redundancy Checking on my history, making content for Viacom Like the music to Tiffany's I come from dope dealers, street hustlers, pop cases Throw dice, off payment, cop chases Big gamblers, scully, high faces Gang wars, hot spots, police raided Left us speechless just like when the judge read the sentence for your life away a minute Left a speechless The bounce back is the greatest feeling when they thought that you was finished Leaving speechless Sunday from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on the bottom line with Joey L on the new Evolution Radio Network. All right, all right, all right. What's happening? Peace to the gods. What's going on? You right here on the bottom line. Today is Sunday, the 26th of December. Hopefully, you catch y'all out there in good spirits. Uh, you got a friend. You can hear this. You can call in. Uh, we're going to play. Um, I'm going to play a Supreme Court case tonight that I think is really valuable for everybody to hear. Um, so if you are there, let me see that you tell a friend to tell a friend, all right? So as we continue our series, tonight we're going to be talking about the Fifth and the Sixth Amendments. Um, and so as y'all know, we, we touched on uh, one, two, three, and four already. So if we walk our way through these amendments, right, and... Um, if you were listening to the audio, then it should be clear that these amendments also apply to the state as well, right? the federal government. Right? So for those of y'all who are stickers that are only using state constitutions, understand that these also apply to those as well. Now, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, it, it addresses criminal procedures, okay? It deals with um, aspects it comes down to, you know, really, and I want to be clear here because the Fifth Amendment has a lot of different exceptions to it, right? But it deals with felonies, it deals with 
grand jury indictment, the judge for double jeopardy. Okay. But most importantly, there's this self-incrimination, right? Because this provides for protection against self-incrimination, right? Including the right of an individual to not serve as a witness in a criminal case against himself, right? That's really important because um, you know, people will do anything they can to try to use uh, what you say against you. Right? And, you know, they, they tell us early on when you first know how to drive, they tell you don't talk to the police, you're not your friends, right? Anything you say uh, or do will be used against you, that type of shit, right? But the idea is that, number one, that's where the Miranda lights come in, that's where the region will write. But um, you have the ability to not incriminate yourself, right? And that's where Miranda versus Arizona comes in. So it's where you hear people say, I plead the fifth, right? The Fifth Amendment, right? It's, a, it's colloquial. It's a, it's a term that people use to invoke that, that the whole clause of I'm not going to self-incriminate myself. So you're not going to use shit against me. So the Supreme Court held that self-incrimination clause requires the police to issue Miranda warnings to criminal suspects interrogated while under police custody. So the question that I would ask a lot of people is, is do you know when you're under police custody? Right? One thing to detain you, it's another thing to have you in custody. It's another thing for them to um, do what's known as coercion. Right, um, an attempt to pull something out of you. Right, I mean it's uh, you know, so you, you have to be very careful about how you get these people. Right, so the Fifth Amendment. We talked about this last week. It contains what's known as the takings clause, which allows the federal government to take private property for public use if the government provides some type of just compensation. Right, um, and you got to think about this. Right, the, the government. Like I said last week, they take people's stuff all the time, but they never provide just compensation to do it. So, just like the 14th Amendment, the 5th Amendment includes due process clauses, right? It says that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. I also told y'all last week that there are two different types of liberty. Right? And, 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 and you know, for happenstance, there could be more, but... Um, in this particular country, that there, there seems to be two systems in which liberty applies to people, right? And one system is that system uh, where if you're technically considered an American, one system of liberty applies. And if you're considered a U.S. citizen, another system of liberty applies, right? And it's really important for us to get that because um, this, this shit can affect you if you're not careful. Okay, so the Fifth Amendment's due process clause it applies to the federal government, while the Fourteenth Amendment due process clause applies to the state governments. And I told y'all this because the state is a Fourteenth Amendment citizen. All right, so this is why when you do your nationality, you come out the system, you really are operating like the sovereign. But you better be careful because then you step into a realm that. Um, it's full of people who normally don't have melanated skin, right? Okay, 
and, and they're going to test you. They're going to test your resolve. It's just a fact, right? So the Supreme Court has interpreted the Fifth Amendment and the due process clause as providing two protections for you, right? And one is the procedural due process, which requires the government official um, to follow what they call fair procedures, right? Before they can deprive you of your life, your liberty, your property, okay? And we, we can call this substantive due process. And if you think about substantive law, right, substantive due process, this is the principle um, where it allows courts to protect certain fundamental rights from government in, in interference because the government will step in and interfere in your shit if they can, right, if they think that they can. So understanding the substantive due process is really important, right, because even if there are procedural protections that are in place, right, um, or the rights are unenumerated, right, and unenumerated rights are basically they're just legal rights, right, that are inferred from other rights. So, so they're basically implied rights, okay. Um, but specifically, okay, um, in the Constitution, okay, so a lot of courts tend to identify the basis for the protection of the Fifth Amendment, right, from the Due Process Clause, right? So they use the Fifth and they use the Fourteenth Amendment. And like I said, the Fourteenth Amendment applies to the states. Like, see, I think what's really important to understand is that the Constitution's they were written to protect your private rights, or they were written to keep public officials in check when they decided that they wanted to step in and violate your private rights, right? So the substantive process, it has a what they call a demarcation line, if you will, uh, between your acts that the courts hold to be uh, subject to the government regulation or the legislation or whatever Congress passes, and then the acts that the court places beyond the reach of the government, right? So the Fifth Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment, they were initially intended to serve a function for you, right? And it continues to be a matter, it really is a scholar matter, as they say, okay? So as we, as we understand this, right, substantive due process, right, it requires government officials to follow fair procedures, okay? And this protects your fundamental rights. This is why you can do constitutional challenges, right? This is why you can challenge shit that happens that comes up. That's what that's about. So the Supreme Court has also held that the Due Process Clause contains prohibition against vague laws, right? And it, and it implied, right, equal protection. So look at the 14th Amendment, there's equal protection there, there's equal protection under the 5th Amendment as well. And most people would ask, well, why is there a difference between the 5th Amendment and the 14th Amendment when it comes to due process, right? Like I said, I'll go back to it again, one's for the state, one's for the federal government. One specifically applies to the states, which would be a 14th Amendment. So, um, you know, when, when a person is, is born in a state, they make you a U.S. citizen, and then you know, the federal government gives the federal government gives them a million dollars for each person that's born, right? This is one of the ways that they keep the state in check. It's a, it's a hell of a way to keep somebody in check. Every time, you know, you're spitting out babies, you're getting paid millions, yeah. You know, it's going to keep some motherfuckers in check, right? But the Supreme Court has also held that due process clause contains prohibitions against vague laws, right? And implied protection requirements. Right, um, it's the equal protection clause. Right, so 
equal protection clause, and, and you can go back as far as the Civil Rights Act, right, of uh, 1866, and you can see this, right, where this guaranteed that all citizens would have the guaranteed right to equal protection by law, right? So as a whole, the 14th Amendment marked a large shift, if you will, in how they used the Constitution. Now, I want to be clear because if you think about the Civil Rights Act of 1866, um, you know, and I think if I'm not mistaken, I might be the one Byron Allen used, but you know, this defined under federal law citizenship and it affirmed all citizens are equally protected by the law, right? So they did this during the American Civil War, Civil Rights Era, all that good stuff, right? But it said that people of African descent born in or brought to the United States essentially were citizens, right? And so, and we talked about this because in 1865, I believe it was, is when they passed the Emancipation Proclamation. But if you heard the show that I did uh, Friday, right, we actually went over the fact that um, there were two acts that were done prior to that, which I would, I would, if I, if I were to take a listen to yesterday or Friday show, right, and get yourself a copy of those acts, okay. So when we talk about equal protection clause and the Fifth Amendment, right, all of this stuff comes into play. So like I said, double jeopardy, right, which is charging somebody twice for the same crime, indictment, grand jury, felonies, incrimination, right, all of that stuff is under the Fifth Amendment. Now, um, you, you can go back as far as the 1700s, right, we talk about James Madison, right, and when they were first trying to uh, amend the the, um, the Bill of Rights, right? They were trying to get it right. They were it was drafting the shit over and over. Back in 1791, they kept drafting it until they got it right, right? But um, it came out though that the grand jury is a pre-constitutional common law institution. Okay, but this is why when you have a case, you ask for a trial by jury. Okay, so the fifth. And the Sixth Amendments, all right, are really important. So they have what's called an exclusionary rule. Okay, now an exclusionary rule in the United States is, is a legal rule, and it's based on constitutional law, which is the general law. Okay, and it prevents evidence collected or analyzed in violation of your constitutional rights from being used in a court of law. Okay. So this may be considered an example of what they call the prophylactic rule. Now, the prophylactic rule is um, it's a judicially crafted rule. And what, what it does is it overprotects a constitutional right. And it gives more protection, right, to you than you would normally have, right, um, in order to safeguard that your constitutionally protected rights or not violated, right? Or to improve um, that right in, in in general, right? And a lot of people have never heard of the prophylactic rule. You can look at the Miranda versus Arizona case, right? For your, your Miranda warnings, right? So when the police tell you you got a right to remain silent, that's when they like, you ain't really my rights. That's what that comes down to, right? Reading somewhere in their rights. So the notion of the prophylactic rule is, is controversial, if you will, right? Um, because they've argued 
lot of a lot of justices like um, Thomas and Scalia, right? If you listen to some of their cases, they've argued against the prophylactic rule, right? And they <laughs> they wrote that the ability of judges to create these rules is what they said, quote, uh, an immense and frightening anti-democratic power, and it does not exist. So you know. <sighs> A democratic republic is what this seems to be. Right? It, it, it sure is. It's what it seems to be. Now, um, we're gonna tonight. We're gonna listen to. I'm gonna play this case because I want y'all to hear this case, and I think that it's important. You know, and plus I don't feel that well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna let the audio do more talking for me tonight than I normally do, but. Um, we're going to look at the Fifth and the Sixth Amendments tonight, right? And so remember, the Sixth Amendment, okay, and, and it deals with all criminal prosecutions, right? The, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and a public trial by an impartial jury of the state, okay, and the district wherein the crime shall have been committed, right? Which district shall have been previously ascertained by law and to be informed. Of the nature and the cause of the accusation to be confronted with the witnesses against them, right? They can't just say, "Oh, you pissed on the tree," and you didn't, right? And 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 I'll play Trinity versus Pagliaro tonight, so y'all can hear that, okay? Because that's really important, right? But to have compulsory process by obtaining witnesses in his favor and to have assistance for counsel for his defense, and this is where they give you a public defender, right? So. Um, they actually adopted it, the, the Sixth Amendment in 1791 as part of the Constitution's Bill of Rights. Um, you know, and you know, if you or somebody close to you, you know, is facing some type of criminal charge, right? It, it's really essential, right, that you know what you're doing when it comes to something like this, right? You either gonna put in a constitutional challenge and they deal with it like that. Or if you don't know that process, you might want to get to a very good attorney. Okay. Because um, in the United States, right, the, the Library of Congress, the Constitution um, of the United States in Congress assembled, okay, like other provisions of the Bill of Rights, right, the Sixth Amendment um, is, is probably one of the most important amendments, right, and it saves a lot of people's ass. And Unfortunately, in a lot of these courts, they don't use the Constitution because they're using statutes and ordinances. They're using special law to get around using uh, general law, right? So, once y'all go look up the Ross versus McClintire case, okay? Um, in this case, that basically said that at one time, um, the court held that the Sixth Amendment reached only citizens and others within the United States. And brought to the United States for trial, and not the citizens residing or temporarily sojourning abroad, right? And you look at another case, which is uh, Reed versus Colbert. And in this case, um, they had the holding, and they said that um, they said that it's inapplicable to proceedings abroad by the United States authorities against American civilians, and further. Not, though not applicable to the states by the amendment's terms, the court has come to protect all of the rights guaranteed in the Sixth Amendment against the state abridgment 
through the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. So the Sixth Amendment applies in criminal prosecutions only those acts that Congress has forbidden with penalties for disobedience for its command or crimes. Right now, if you're more, right, you operate with the highest laws, which would be the treaties, right? And, and don't don't get it twisted for one moment and think that these people don't try to come at you when you're more. They try to they're gonna try to come at you more and more. So you better study some more and more. Okay, you know. So you know when you take actions to recover penalties that are imposed by uh, acts of Congress, right? You have to make sure that you are in your proper status. Okay. Very important. Um, now, the... See if I can pull it up for y'all, right? Because I, I had it up the other day. I've been doing so much research. Um, but you, you, you want to get a copy uh, of this uh, this act right, that I put up the other day. Um which is important, right? Because it it deals it deals with it, it was there were two acts that were done, okay? Um, you know, and here's the thing about these acts, right? I'm sorry, I, I I'm I'm not feeling this. So off the top of my head, I cannot remember the shit. It was in yesterday Friday show, but um, the acts deal with with slavery, right? They deal with servitude, um, and they, and they deal with the fact that. Um, when, when they caught troops, or I should not troops, but when they caught um, you know the opposite side, or they had slaves, any of that, they had to release them. Right? It's one of the first things that they had to do. And this was before they passed. Um, this is before they did the Emancipation Proclamation, right? and it was really important because um, they were freeing slaves as early as 1860, 1861. They were freeing slaves as early as that. Okay. And, you know, these slaves were under the Confederate. Actually, I'm sorry. Now I do remember. It was the Confiscation Act. Duh. Right? So, Confiscation Act, 1861, 1862. Right? These, and the reason why I'm speaking on this is because um, war is perpetual. Right? So, it was an act permitting seizures of property, including slaves who were used to support insurrection during the American Civil War. It was approved on August the 6th, 1861, and the act permitted the confiscation of property that had been allowed by the owner to be used by the Confederate soldiers during the American Civil War, right? So they were freeing slaves as early as that, okay? It wasn't that clear. A lot of people didn't get freed. So they did another act in 1862, right? They ignored that. So the government ramped it up. Because, see, the government passed the shit. The government will pass shit all day long. You can go look at all the congressional acts. They'll pass it, and you'll never know that they did it. And then they'll just sit on their hands, right? Because nobody's enforcing it. So they were passing acts as early as 1861. Really before that, there's acts that go back to the 1700s. Okay? But they were passing acts to release slaves, right? And... Um, if you if you go up to 1865, right, the Emancipation Proclamation happened. Then we had the Freedmen's Bureau, right. The 14th Amendment came not too long after, 
right? The Fourteenth Amendment was said to put the states in check so the states wouldn't keep enslaving people, and this way people had some type of due process, right? So so that they couldn't keep hanging niggas, right? Just believe me, I tell you, they were hanging niggas left and right. What's up, uh, Purple Peel? Welcome to the show. Yeah, if you win, press one, and I'll put you in. All right. So. I just want to make sure that y'all, you know, take a look at the confiscation acts, right? Really important acts. You might want to get you a copy of it. And I and I specifically recommend that if you've nationalized, because the climate out here is real, right? But without further ado, we're going to get into this tonight. Um, so I want to make sure that we touch on this tonight. And we're going to listen to, we're going to listen to a Supreme Court case um, out of Philadelphia, all right? And, um... Listen, public bill. There was a civil war. <laughs> okay, there, there was a civil war. It, it happened. It, it's not make believe. It may not have happened the way that that we were told, but it 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 happened. Right in the sense of, uh, you know, a war can be done on paper, right? Paper genocide, right? So let me tell you, something happened. Um, but anyways, we're gonna listen to this tonight. And um, I welcome y'all to to comment after we finish. All right. And um, let's get into it, right? This is the Supreme Court case. Um, this case specifically, this is an important case, too, because uh, it it's going to deal with your Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights. Right. Well, okay. Call it a national war, then. Call it whatever you want to call it. Call it a domestic war, right? But. Listen, listen, Papa Pierre. I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and remove you, brother, because you, you're coming in disrespectful, right? I don't really care. You're listening to my show. I'm not listening to you, right? <laughs> so uh, you're clearly not on my level, but I'm not gonna argue with you about that. All right, we're gonna go into this, and um, and then we'll be back. Case is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 89-213, Pennsylvania versus Munoz. Mr. Aiken, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in this case we have a drunk driving suspect, Innocencio Muniz, who was legitimately in custody, and that is not at issue. What is at issue is what the police did with Mr. Muniz once they lawfully had him in custody. What they did is what they do with the large majority of drunk driving cases, which now number over a thousand a year in Cumberland County, Pennsylvania. They took him to one of the central booking stations that had been set up 
and there turned them over to several processing agents, uh, employees of the county whose job it is to do nothing but process drunk driving suspects. What they did was a multi-step function, uh, all of it on videotape. They bring the individual into the room, ask him some routine booking questions, his name, his address, his social security number and such. They then follow that with several sobriety tests. They first, at this point, ask him to try to calculate the date of his sixth birthday. They ask him to uh, walk a line, nine steps. They ask him to balance himself on one leg while counting to 30. And they conduct the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, which measures uh, the effect of alcohol on the function of the eye. Mr. Aiken, may I ask you, are these regular, this is routine that's followed with everyone? Yes, sir. Is it pursuant to a regulation, or is it just this particular police department? That does well, this is the, the county, uh, which encompasses probably uh, state police, several military installations, and 20-odd local departments. The county agents do it, and they always do it the same. The latter three of the uh, field tests are what are called the standard field sobriety tests. They're the ones that are recommended by the National Highway Traffic you say they'd always do it the same, just by custom, not by, by no written regulation requires no, the procedure. No, not by law or regulation. What um, would happen if an if a individual said, I, I won't do it? Well, the law, we feel, would allow the police to compel them to do it, but practically speaking, there is no way you can uh, compel a person to walk a line and get any useful does he, does information. He, uh, does he violate any law if he says, I will not recite the alphabet or I will not... Tell you my sixth birthday. No, sir. What happens is that the videotape, which uh, is available, would indicate the circumstances of the refusal, yeah. and so the refusal may come into evidence. Right. But uh, there's no penalty accepting the breath test, which is the, the stage of the process that follows these uh, sobriety tests is the breath test. The individual is advised that under Pennsylvania law, uh, there is an implied consent. You have breath test here. If you refuse to take it, you will lose your license for an additional year's time, regardless of the uh, conviction or lack of conviction on the underlying drunk driving case. In this case, Mr. Muniz made several statements while that was being explained to him, as is required by Pennsylvania law. He refused the test eventually. At that point, he was taken again to another table. He was given his warnings under the Miranda decision and then for the first time was asked specific questions aimed at his drinking, where he was drinking, what he had to drink, where he was coming from. The test in this case, or the issue that is to be resolved, we submit, is the distinction between those latter questions, which are clearly aimed at gaining testimonial evidence from the accused, and everything that went before, which was gained or aimed at gaining physical evidence. Well, now, one of, one of the questions asked at the processing stage was, I believe, uh, what was the date of your sixth birthday? Yes, that's correct. Now, is that some kind of a routine question that's asked whenever the police think someone might have been drinking? It was asked routinely in Cumberland County at the time. Since the decision by the Superior Court, it has not been asked, but it was at that time. It is asked at the conclusion of the routine booking questions and immediately before the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. Uh, well, wouldn't the, the information given in the response 
be relevant on the question of whether the person had been drinking or not? Yes, we submit it would be, just as the... So it could be testimonial? No, no, ma'am. I don't believe it, it, uh, it would be testimonial. It is another sobriety test. It is not aimed at determining the truth of the answer, the date of his sixth birthday. What it's but aimed whether at... Whether he responds accurately or not is relevant. That's correct. And you would propose to offer it and use that against him? Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. We would use it to show the physiological effect that alcohol has had on that man's brain, not to elicit the contents of his mind. The brain controls the Why tongue. Why isn't that a form of interrogation? Because the goal is not to achieve testimonial evidence. It is not to achieve... Well, it certainly is to get evidence to use against the person to establish uh, whether they've been drinking or not. That's correct, just as walking... It's quite unlike asking the person for... Um, an address and a driver's license. That's correct. But it is also unlike asking him, how much did you have to drink? What it is designed to show is that alcohol has affected this man's brain to the point that he cannot do basic calculation. Well, would he have a right to refuse to answer that question? He said, I refuse to answer that question. I suggest he probably would, just as uh, uh, he can re refuse to answer any question. Well... Could you then put in evidence the fact that he refused to do the birthday calculation? We would submit you can because it is not aimed at testimonial. Well, so then he doesn't have a right to, to, re, to refuse to decline on Fifth Amendment grounds at least. Well, what he, has, he has no right to be warned of the consequences of... No, he has no, under your view, he has no self-incrimination right not to answer that question. Because if you say that he does, then you can't introduce his refusal into evidence. As a practical, perhaps I'm speaking more as a practical matter than anything else, because to, to compel someone in that circumstance is, is, is practically impossible without the intervention. It, no, the, the question is a simple one. Whether or not he has a Fifth Amendment right to decline to answer the question. We would suggest he does not have a Fifth Amendment right not to answer the question. Just as he doesn't, I suppose, in, in your view, to refuse to walk a line. Yes, sir. Although neither one can actually be compelled in, in a police station kind of Right. We have the right to compel, but uh, practically speaking, no ability to compel. Challenge in this case to, I, I guess there is, to the introducing uh, the videotape of the physical tests? In this case, the Pennsylvania Supreme Superior Court merely suppressed the audio portion. In subsequent cases of theirs, they have said that uh, it would be unfair to force the defendant to uh, choose between a video without audio and therefore have suppressed well, well, How about in this case? In this case? In this case was merely the audio that was... Well, and, and uh, so uh, the, the, uh, the demonstration that he couldn't walk a straight line, uh, that shows what the effect of alcohol is on his physical coordination, I suppose. Well, it... To a degree, it does. In this specific case, his uh, explanations as to why he could not walk the line uh, were, were certainly relevant. If we have the right to ask him to walk the line, I suggest his responses to that request or that demand are, are just as relevant as the actual walking of the line itself. 
And there shouldn't be a distinction between his oral refusal to do this test. What about this eye test? You can't see that on video, can you? You can, yes. We've had experts who testify. The camera zooms in such that the face of the accused... And is that what happened in this case? Yes. Yes, Your Honor. And it shows the eye... And what does that show? It shows the eye tracking a stimulus, which in this case was a pencil, from side to side slowly. And is that supposed to show that he was drinking? Yes, sir. Had been drinking? Yes, sir. So it shows the alcohol, the effect of alcohol on his eye movement? That's correct. Just like you say the birthday question shows the effect of alcohol on his mind? That's correct. The question is not aimed at getting the truthful, how old were you in such and such a year. It's aimed to show that the mind is affected. Not the contents of the mind, but the brain being affected by alcohol. The brain does a lot of things. It controls your feet when you walk the line. It controls your tongue when you go to talk. That's why slurred speech is one of the classic indicia that defense counsel say, well, he didn't have slurred speech when the policeman doesn't hear it. It's that classic. But it's because the brain is affected by alcohol, not the tongue itself. May I just ask this question? You did have in this case the fact he refused to take the one test. You can use the eye movements and you can use the staggering down the line. Do you really need the rest of the evidence? It seems to me you, it almost sounds cumulative to me here, what we're fighting about. It may be, Your Honor, but the goal of the testing is to establish a routine that gives the best possible evidence to the finder of fact. And the three standard tests developed by the Highway Safety Council are ones that have statistically been shown to correlate to a very high degree to persons over the legal limit. May I ask this question, too? If the issue were not whether the man was intoxicated, but say it was in a different kind of criminal proceeding, and the issue were whether he was mentally competent to stand trial or mentally competent to receive the death penalty or something like that, would you say you could perform these tests without giving him warning? I think that would have to be on a case-by-case basis. Why? Isn't it the same issue? Well, there are several lower... The question is whether the privilege against self-incrimination protects him from making these verbal statements. I don't know why the nature of the proceeding should matter. The case I think of is the Estelle case, where the psychiatrist in that case was using the substance of what was related to him rather than forming conclusions without regard to the substance of them. If here we are to introduce for the truth of what is said his response, that's different. And I think in the mental health cases and insanity defenses, that... Sometimes that's true, but you could also have a case where you just want to find out how his mind works when he's asked to recite the alphabet and when he's asked about his sixth birthday and that sort of thing, I would think. I don't know. And I think in those cases, Your Honor, it would be proper because, again, it's not testimonial in nature. It's demonstrative in nature. But if the... Suppose the issue is whether or not... One of the issues in the case is whether or not he can speak Spanish. And the police officers start talking to him in Spanish to see if he responds. Can I ask him, do you speak Spanish? In that case, I believe it would be proper because you're not asking for a specific fact in his mind, but merely a... And his answer, in your view, is not used to incriminate him? 
would be based on his knowledge. It would be to incriminate him, but not because of the contents of his mind. Just as in the Dionisio case, where voice. How do you know Spanish? How do you know Spanish? You learned it in your arm. Of course, you learned it in your mind, don't you? The ability to speak Spanish certainly is contained in the mind. But if the court, as you have, have allowed us to take voice exemplars or to speak at a lineup, the language in which you speak is equally as non-intrusive. Suppose this defendant is very nervous, and what he does is he takes his existing age and he subtracts six, and then he takes that number and subtracts it from today's date. And he comes out wrong, either because he doesn't quite do it right or because he misses a month, he uses years, and he has a late birthday. Still admissible in evidence? I'd suggest it's admissible, but certainly the weight of it is something that is always subject to... Would he have to get on the stand to explain how he did it and why he made the mistake? The same as he can get on the stand to explain why he didn't walk the line properly or balance properly or anything else. He can get on to explain why... It's qualitatively different because you're asking him to perform a mental feat that requires verbal articulation, and that's what the Fifth Amendment is designed to protect against. Well, the cases have clearly stated that if the purpose is to get the contents of the mind, that's one thing. But the processes of the brain in being able to do basic math or recite the alphabet or things that are not in and of themselves indicative of the contents of the mind of an individual relative to what they're looking for, that that is different and ought to be maintained as different. The mere fact that it is an oral manifestation rather than a physical should not matter. We don't have them walk the line... Because the Fifth Amendment is concerned with testimonial communication. That's why we're concerned, and that's why there might be a difference. Don't you think the question is one that the police would reasonably expect would result in an incriminating response under these circumstances? Only in the same level as they would expect... There was every indication this person had been drinking. There were lots of indications he'd been drinking, staggering around and slurred speech and what have you. So they knew when they asked that birthday question, it was likely to give an incriminating response. Just as they knew when he would walk the line, he was likely to incriminate himself in that manner, but not in a testimonial sense. But that's not an interrogation. It's not interrogation. It's not because it's not testimonial. It is physical. It is demonstrative. But the inability to count to six is, I suggest, the same as the inability to walk six steps. The function affected is the brain. We are not asking him to disclose any information about it. The fact that he is more likely to say something incriminating or not should not inhibit the police in gathering physical evidence, which I suggest this is, just as much as walking the line. Was he asked to recite the alphabet? No, not in this case. Again, this case was after the Bruder case in Pennsylvania, which at the time said that was improper because the contents of the alphabet were testimonial, which I suggest they're not. Mr. Egan, there is this difference between this case and the other non-testimonial cases that you talk about. It seems to me you're quite correct that the content of his mind is not the object 
of the enterprise. It's not the end that is sought, but it is the means. And in these other cases, that is, because of, of the current content of his mind, you know that he's drunk. You, you don't want to introduce the content of his mind, but the, the means of, of showing that he's drunk is finding out the current content of his mind. Wouldn't you acknowledge that difference? And that that's quite different from walking a line or, or uh, uh, being compelled to give a handwriting exemplar or a, or a voice sample or anything like that. No, I, I don't. You don't acknowledge that. Weren't you trying to find out the content of his mind? In his mind, did he know what his sixth birthday was? No, sir. We're trying to show that his physiological ability to calculate was affected. How do you show it? How do you show it? You show it by asking the content of his mind, and, and the content of his mind proves that his mind's not working right. If it's the same uh, when he can't walk the line? I suggest it is the same. Isn't it comes from the brain? It all comes from the brain, and what we're trying to show is not how old he was, what year he was six. That's the contents of the mind, but it's the inability to arrive at that conclusion, which is a process of the brain that is affected by alcohol. The, the judgment driving down the road is impaired by the alcohol, and you cannot determine, is this your street or not? Is this a place I can make a U-turn or not? It's not introduced to show what, what the street is, proper or improper. It's to show that the function is impaired. I don't consider walking a line the content of the mind. That, that may be a function of the brain, but when we talk about the content of the mind, you mean ideas, you mean concepts. That's what the, that's what the Fifth Amendment is, is about. That's correct. Facts. And, and, and this is the only kind of a situation I know of in which you are, to be sure, you don't want the content for its own sake. You do want the content of the mind as a means of showing something else. And, and that differs from all these other uh, testimonial situations, it seems to me, or non-testimonial situations. Well, I uh, certainly respect that distinction if, if you see one, Your Honor. But I, I you can give me another case where, where, where we have used uh, the content of the mind in the sense of ideas. Again, I'm, I'm, I fall back, as Justice White says, that... Uh, Taking nine steps physically, taking nine steps mentally, neither discloses facts that that individual knows. If we'd have asked him, as we did after rights, were you drinking, that's a fact in his mind. That is, his ability, if he slurs his words in answering, that is not testimonial. It's relevant, but it's not testimonial. It's not the contents of his mind. It's not the extortion of information from him. It's the extortion of his ability to think, not what yeah, that, that's, that's his ability to, to move his lips. You give him a paper to read, it, it, it has nothing to do with any ideas in his mind. You give him a paper to read and he can't move his lips. It's physical, just as the way he can't move his feet. But in order to find that he can't think correctly, you must know what the content of his mind is, what, what idea he has in there. So you ask him this question. Now, maybe it's okay, but it's different from all of the other testimonial cases that I know of. Uh, it, it is different in that sense, I agree. But I would suggest that the mere fact that the test is an oral one rather than a physical one, strictly physical, is not the basis for the court's distinction between testimonial and demonstrative evidence. It never has been. I'd suggest, suggest never should be. The fact that uh, no fact is disclosed here is, is significant. The purpose for this information is not to show the date of his sixth birthday. 
The Superior Court in this case felt that the, the routine questions were certainly all right. We had the right to ask uh, the individual to submit to routine sobriety tests of a physical nature. They said, however, at some point during the latter, Mr. Muniz's responses became communicative in nature, and therefore Miranda came in the side door and should have been uh, given to him at the outset. I think the record is clear that these were spontaneous remarks made in uh, response to his instructions. They were honest. They were on videotape. They were not coercive. And the fact that he merely says something in response that is uh, incriminating in itself does not mean that... Well, they explained the, they explained the test to him. They, they explained the breathalyzer test. They, they explained every test to him and his response... And they, and they say, do you understand? That's correct. And he says, uh, no, I don't understand, uh, and they have a big, long talk about it? Yes, sir. Now, you say that uh, that is all uh, just spontaneous? And well, it is, it is not the result of interrogation. Even well, it says, it do you understand? That's correct. Well, isn't that interrogation? I suppose it, it's, it's... If it is interrogation, it is certainly fairer interrogation than having the test run and then having him complain that he did not understand, and that's why he didn't do it. Particularly in this case, where Spanish is, in fact, uh, the gentleman's first language, English his second language, it's certainly reasonable for the police to ask him, to un do you understand, just as they well, do when they give be, That may be, but the question is, is, uh, is, is about the statements he made in response. No, it is not gain aimed at gaining testimonial evidence, again. But it was testimonial evidence. Well, the result, if it is... Wasn't it? If he expressed confusion... Wasn't it the wasn't result, it testimonial? The evidence? result was testimonial. Yeah. But the, it is not interrogation because it's not designed to get that, nor is it reasonably likely to get that. The mere fact that uh, intoxicated people might be more inclined to spill the beans on themselves than a sober person doesn't give them a greater or a different rule, it doesn't cause the police to have to be uh, giving them different warnings or, or rights than they give the sober person. If the burglar with a distinctive limp is made to walk the line for witnesses and the drunk is made to walk the line for all of us on videotape, I'd suggest the standard is the same. Just because the drunk is more likely to, to say something incriminating during his processing is not... What words do they use when they ask him to walk the line? Do they say, will you do it, or please walk the line, or it's, what do they say? What, what are the words? Well, they ask him to come to the end and say, I'm going to indicate to you now how I want you to do this. Please stand there until I show you. And then the officer demonstrates with three or four steps how he wants to do it. Mr. Muniz, in this case, kept talking during the instructions. Uh, he kept saying, the reason I can is because I've had too much to drink? Or... No, he didn't say that. Uh, he said that at roadside. Uh, uh, but uh, in this case, he indicated that he couldn't do it. He could do it at his home, but he couldn't do it here. He couldn't take the test now, the breath test, but he'd be happy to take it in a couple hours. Uh, he, he said many things that were uh, certainly incriminating, but they weren't the response asked for by the police, and I'd suggest to cause the police to, to forego gathering legitimate physical evidence because 
It's a drunk, and he might say something. You don't need to forgo the physical evidence. The question is whether the, whether the statements are admissible as well as the physical evidence. That's correct. But again, if wow. someone confesses during the gathering of legitimate testimonial evidence or legitimate demonstrative evidence, I suggest there's no purpose served by excluding that confession or incriminating statement any more than if it was during a lineup and he blurts out, during a search warrant and he blurts it out, or routine sobriety testing and he blurts it out. What, what is the... Uh how much damage do you suppose that would, would be done to the program if you had to give Miranda warnings uh, as soon as you got him to the, to the station house? I think the damage is shown by the Thompson case in Pennsylvania, one of the, the Superior Court's line of cases where they did, in response to the decision in this case, give Miranda warnings at the outset. The accused then became, in the words of the court, obscene and belligerent when he refused to cooperate with these physical tests because they had just told him he had the right to remain silent and have a lawyer present. And he didn't want to do that without his lawyer present. He became obscene and belligerent, and the court ended up suppressing well, the is entire that, tape. That, is, is that all? Uh, is that, you just have that one instance, or is there, is there some... Uh... That's one instance that's found its way to the appellate courts. I suggest to you where, where you tell him you have the right to remain silent and have a lawyer present, you suspect them of being intoxicated in the first place. To, to expect that to do anything but confuse the individual is, is just not realistic. It serves no purpose. It protects no one. It does hamper the gathering of legitimate physical evidence and I think would be a totally intolerable rule given the, the desire we all is have. It, is, the, is, the experience, is, it, is it the experience in your state that... The, that successful prosecution of drunk driving cases is really difficult, very difficult? Uh, not with the booking cases. We have uh, more than tripled our prosecution rate in conjunction with these centers. Police are more likely to cooperate in bringing the person in. The citizenry accepts it. The case is on videotape. It's a two-edged sword sometimes, but, but it's there, and I think the truth-finding process is served by it. Uh, Pennsylvania has a per se rule if the test is over a .10. So if we have the test, that often resolves the case. Not always, but often. In this case, we had no test, and everything else becomes the crux of but the case. But it's found to be effective. Oh, yes. Yes, sir. Unless there are other questions, I'll reserve the remaining time. Very well, Mr. Aiken. Uh, Mr. Moffat, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court, a distinction must be drawn in this case because of the crime involved. Driving under the influence is a unique offense in the sense that the state of the mind of the defendant is actually an element of the offense. Uh, the, the Commonwealth must prove for a conviction uh, driving under the influence of alcohol to a degree that makes the person incapable of safe driving. Under the influence of alcohol is defined um, by the Pennsylvania courts as to include any mental or physical condition as a result of drinking that either makes the person unfit to drive or substantially impairs judgment, clearness of intellect, or normal faculties essential for safe driving. And Pennsylvania courts have defined substantial impairment to be diminution or enfeeblement, inability to exercise judgment, to deliberate, or to react prudently to change circumstances. 
How do you define testimonial? I would define testimonial as anything that would disclose the contents of someone's mind, either directly, either a direct confession or the inferences, inferences from the words themselves. Well, how about asking the person uh, the name and address? Well, in some circumstances, the name and address may not be uh, testimonial, may be considered, well, I would submit it would be testimonial because it discloses the contents of the mind. Sometimes it would not be interrogation because it could be found to be uh, uh, incident to normal arrest and custody. However, in a drunk driving situation where practically anything uh, can, can disclose the contents of the mind and can be uh, expected to produce an incriminating response, that, that then even asking the name and address without, being, without giving the Miranda warnings would be considered interrogation. So you think here every single question that was put to, this, uh, to your client was interrogation and Miranda warnings were required before even asking the name and address? Especially under the facts of this case, Your Honor, because not only had the police officer obtained this information at the at roadside, but the booking officer had obtained this information before they went on videotape. Well, but you would take the position that it was required at roadside as well. At, Nothing could be asked well, at before roadside, giving Miranda warning. At roadside, he would not yet be in custody. And the very first thing the officer normally does is, as he begins his investigation would be your name, address, driver's license. Excuse me? He stopped him, didn't he? Uh, the man was at the side of the road, and the police officer yeah. stopped, and then he pulled off, and the officer And so stopped. they stopped him? Yes. Well, what about if after he stopped, they ask him to walk a line? If he's not yet been arrested, he wouldn't be in custody, and this court's decision in Berkmer would control... And so, so, suppose, supposing he, he was in custody, or he had been arrested, and they then ask him to walk a line? It, is that permissible? Yes. So is, is the result of the walking the line admissible if he has not previously been given Miranda warning? That's not the issue in this case, Your Honor. Well, it may not be, but I'm yes. very interested in your answer to the question. I think, I think that it, under uh, some circumstances that could also be testimonial. If, for example, it discloses the man's inability to follow instructions, and one of the key parts of the, of the coordination test, according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration instructions is, one of the key scoring points is, can this man follow directions? So that if he's walking the straight line, if he can't do that because he can't follow the directions, or he can't remember the test, that yes, that, that can be testimonial also. Well, because it, it discloses what you refer to as the contents of his mind? Yes, it discloses his inability to, to reason. Uh, it discloses his inability to remember his intellect. Do you, do you regard that as a satisfactorily precise phrase of disclosing the contents of one's mind? Well, not exactly, and it's, it's hard to come up with a precise phrase because the other cases don't deal exactly with this issue. The only issue that I can see close is the insanity situation. Most other cases, how, whether or not I can reason doesn't really come into whether or not the crime can be proven. How about the voice exemplar cases and the handwriting sample cases? Why do they not disclose the contents of one's mind? In those cases, the person who is giving the sample is not trying to communi communicate anything to the, to the person he's giving the sample to, nor are the, uh, are the law enforcement authorities attempting to get communication. They simply want the physical aspect, the normal sound of the voice, the normal way the handwriting is written, so that there's no communication. Well, but it, it, it does take brain activity to produce that. 
it takes some brain activity. I think that in past decisions of this court, the court has found it to be so minimal as to be not considered because it's no conscious thought. And there's no, although there's brain activity, there's no intention to communicate. Well, there's certainly an intention to convey an idea. Is that what you mean by an intention? Yes, I'm sorry. There's no intention to convey an idea. And the times that samples like this have been allowed has always been a situation where it was for identity, not for element of the crime. What if you ask me to give a writing sample and I write, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. Now, I'm there communicating an idea, am I not? That's right. And I do not think that, under my understanding of this court's past decisions, that that would not be permissible because that discloses, rather than you giving me a sentence, the quick brown fox jumps over the log to write. And I write what you tell me to write. If you pick what you write and you decide how to spell it and what you pick, then that does disclose the mental thought process. So the handwriting sample cases depend upon whether or not the defendant is told what to write, which is all right, or said, write anything you want, which is not all right? I would submit that's correct. Both United States v. Wade and Dionisio and Gilbert all involved situations where the person who gave the sample was given something and said, write this, speak this. So would it be all right here to ask the defendant to recite the alphabet? It would not because it would involve his intellectual capacity to put the letters together, to remember what comes after B. It's just like being given a sentence to write. Except that if he forgets how to write the sentence, he can look on the paper and see it to write it. In fact, there's a case, United States v. Campbell, which is the Court of Appeals, it's not this circuit, where the individual had to spell the exemplar, where the exemplar was dictated to them, but they had to pick the spelling. But that was found to be testimonial because the person conveyed the contents of his thought process, this is how I spell the word. And so similarly, if you're asked to recite the ABCs, again, that's not this case, but if you're asked to recite the ABCs and you have to pick what comes after D and how many letters are there, that discloses exactly what the Fifth Amendment was intended to protect. May I question that, Mr. Maffitt? It seems to me when you talk about the contents of the mind, you can think of it as a warehouse with the contents of which are all sorts of information, data, facts, and the like. The separate question is how well the machinery in the warehouse is working. And that is, does it, if you're asked to recite the alphabet and all the rest of it, how is the mind functioning? How is the nervous system functioning? Why is that different from Justice White's example asking him to walk? That tells you how the nervous system functions. It doesn't reveal any of the material that's stored in the warehouse. And I think contents of the mind mean something stored there, not how it works. But the function of the mind is an element of this offense. And by asking the man to calculate... But I don't know how that advances the argument. Well, by asking the man to calculate the date of his sixth birthday, unlike walking the straight line, he then is disclosing information that incriminates him from his mouth, from his thought process. Well, from his mind, but he's showing how his mind works. It works in a way that the law says is an element of the crime. That's correct. And I would argue that that is protected by the Fifth Amendment. This court in Estelle v. Smith, in that case, the psychiatrist took what the man said to him and decided that that man's mind worked in such a way 
that he was dangerous to society and deserved the death penalty. And, and, and this is that conclusion rested in part on how the mind worked and in part on the facts that were revealed during the discussion with the psychiatrist. And there were both aspects were there. Yeah. Well, this case, to a certain extent, has, a, has the same thing because the, the inability to calculate the sixth birthday or to get your age right uh, reveals how Mr. Muniz's mind worked. Uh, I would submit in similar fashion. On that basis, I, I, I would suppose that uh, if you ask him what's, his, what, what's your age and he answers and he slurs, yes. uh, you, could, you, could use, uh, you could use the information he gave you, how old you are, but you couldn't show on videotape or have the, have the audio part showing that he slurred because that shows how he's speaking, how his mind is letting his tongue work. I, I would agree, Your Honor, and part of the problem is that sometimes you have a combination of testimonial... So you could get a voice ex exemplar, except it, it couldn't include a slurring. Well, part, part of the problem, particularly in a, in a situation where the intoxication is, is the crime, you, you get a situation where you have a mixture of physical and testimonial in the same thing. You have a mixture of the physical part of the, the control of the tongue with the thoughts of the mind. And it, it's, it's something that I would submit to the court, you, you can't cut the line. You can't exclude the testimony. So the part. slurring is inadmissible, in your view. The fact that he talks in a slurred manner is inadmissible, without Miranda warnings. I would, I would submit that it is, Your Honor. And, and Again, that's not the, the situation here. But, but For the same it, reason that walking, that uh, uh, inability to walk a line would be inadmissible, in your view? Well, again, inability to walk a line, the, pr the problem becomes that there are both physical and testimonial aspects. There are the aspects that show the diminished ability to reason, and there are aspects that show the diminished ability Let, to walk. Let's, let's just take the typical situation where he's told to walk a line, shown how, and in the view of the police, doesn't succeed. And then you say you have a, vi a video and audio of that. Uh, Is that admissible? In your view, how how he walked that line is that in the is is his inability to do it that he doesn't follow the well, you, video you, 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 does it perfect that falls off the line you don't you, you, he, he, the the police simply say you didn't walk a straight line and the video confirms that he didn't walk a straight line that would be much closer to strictly physical and so would be would be permitted because that's that's more towards the exemplar situation where you're looking at a person's normal gait. Normal voice. I mean, it's physical, but the mind's a physical thing. Uh, the, the reason he doesn't walk the line is not because there's something wrong with his foot; it's because it's something wrong with his mind. That's that's true. However, if he's walking the line, uh, it, it primarily would show his inability to control his physical features. Yes. It depends. The inability of his mind. It shows how his mind is worked. That, that's. That's correct. You, you, you wouldn't limit your, your you know, the, the, the Constitution, just, just to mention it, does, does say that, that what we're talking about here is compelling a person in a criminal case to be a witness against himself, to be a witness. Don't you think that, that sort of focuses on, on ideas, on the conveying of, of uh, not, not, you know, uh, whether your mind can control your foot or not, but thoughts, ideas, that what witnesses do? Yes, and, and, and ideas are involved in this case. 
again, this case doesn't involve, we didn't challenge the physical coordination tests. We're, we're, we merely challenged the responses that Mr. Muniz made. As far as walking the straight line and the one-leg stand, we didn't make any challenge to those, to those items. Yeah, but you're now saying that might have been a mistake. I mean, you're, you're carrying your, your position to the point there that, that even where what he says does not disclose thoughts in his mind, but even if it just discloses whether his mind can control anything, that that might, might be bad. I think that you'd have to go on a case-by-case -case basis. If it would, I'm sure. Well, if, because if it's, you get the combination of the physical and testimonial, and unless, if I think of a specific instance, then I can say, well, I, I believe this to be physical or testimonial. But the, the idea is the, when Mr. Muniz tries to walk a straight line, or when Mr. Muniz tried to answer these questions, he was trying to convey the idea to the booking center personnel, I'm not drunk. I'm, I'm all right. I didn't commit a crime. That's the idea he's trying to convey. The Commonwealth, in trying to, to show these things, is trying to convey the, the, the impression he is drunk. He has committed a crime. So that there is an idea, even, in the, even when he tries to walk the straight line, he, he's trying to communicate, I'm okay. I, I haven't had too much to drink. And I, I don't know that. Well, I, mean, I, I guess in the same way you can say when you give a, a, a voice exemplar, you're trying to communicate, my voice sounds like this. I mean, in that sense, everything's a communication of, of, of something in your mind. But with the, voice, with the voice exemplar, again, the individual is merely asked to, to repeat a, a phrase or a sentence or whatever it is. Communicating my voice sounds like this as much as, as your client would be communicating, you know, I can control my feet. Well... The exemplar cases have always been for the identity of the person rather than the, the elements of the crime itself. Why should that make any difference when you were, we're talking about the availability of the privilege against self-incrimination? Because identifica identification is not... Uh, the, the physical identification, the, as uh, Justice Scalia said, the Fifth Amendment, prote Fifth Amendment protects the person from being a witness against themselves. Identification doesn't make, doesn't normally make that person a witness against himself. Well, but that's because the cases have said identification in this sense is not testimonial. Not that it's not an element of the crime, not that it's not helpful in getting the person convicted. But, but if you identify me, that doesn't help you to convict me. It helps you to convict me in the sense that you may know who the suspect is. But the police, the law enforcement authorities still must take and develop their evidence on their own and make their case as opposed to having me participate in making their case. Well, but if, if we know that a person with a certain kind of handwriting uh, forged this check, and it turns out that you have required by the grand jury to give a handwriting example or have that kind of handwriting, that is very obviously a link in the prosecution's case against you. It, so that if, if it were testimonial, you would surely have a right to object. It, it is a link in the case, but, but it's not the case. It, 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 again, may provide the identity of the individual. Would have you, to. you say the difference is whether it's just a link in the case as opposed to the case? Well, it, and a person's identity is always a link in the case because even if you have really strong proof, if you, don't have the, who the, if you can't prove who it was, you don't have a case. But, you don't have, but identity doesn't help prove the elements of the crime. For, for example... Uh, this court in, Cal I believe, California versus Byers said that an individual had to stop uh, uh, 
had to stop after he had an accident and, and stay there. And he was, by staying there, he was divulging his identity. But that um, this, it didn't help the Commonwealth prove their case because they still had to prove that he had committed some criminal violation. There were other parts to the opinion. I, I agree, but, but that's my understanding of the difference between identity and, and, and actually helping convict yourself. The, there can be no question that uh, calculating the sixth birthday uh, or, or the other things that Mr. Meniz was asked to do, uh, again, show either his ability to recall a reason or his inability to do that and his clearness of intellect, judgment, and mental state. Uh, the fact that, uh, that he didn't direct, that, in other words, that the Commonwealth didn't want to use uh, his, the date of his sixth birthday for the actual proof of when the date of his sixth birthday is, is of no moment, as this court decided in Estelle versus Smith, the impressions, inferences from what was said can be, it can be just as protected and just as testimonial as, uh, as the direct words. The, it, it cannot be argued in this case that any of Mr. Muniz's responses were voluntary. Uh, the Superior Court found, as a matter of fact, both that the uh, utterances were clearly compelled and that none of them were voluntary. And furthermore, where a defendant is in custody and he hasn't been given his Miranda warnings, there's a presumption of, uh, of compulsion. Really, you really think that uh, there was a finding that these were actually compelled or just that there was, uh, it was equivalent to in-custody in uh, interrogation uh, that would demand Miranda warnings? There was a finding that uh, all, all of the, all of, all of what needed to have happened, as I understand, was that the Miranda warnings would, should have been given first. That, that's right, Your Honor, and and perhaps I misspoke. There was a finding that his his uh, comments were not uh, were, were prompted. In other words, were either in response to direct questions or conduct on the part of the booking officer. Not that not so much that they were compelled in that sense. But but this court has in the past held that. Uh, where a defendant is questioned in custody and without Miranda warnings, that, he, that, that there's a presumption of, of compulsion. Uh, this can, again, these, the, uh, the, the occurrences in this case can't be um, uh, argued to be tantamount to uh, merely attendant to, normally attendant to arrest in custody because it goes far beyond what normally happens and what this court has found to be uh, attendant to arrest in custody. This is a situation far beyond fingerprinting or photographing or, or a blood or a breath test. This was an investigative process. Uh, the, uh, even the booking center process itself is designed to gather evidence. You have a situation where not only is the defendant separated from the public, he's separated from the rest of the police department. Only drunk driving suspects are taken to these booking centers. The defendant is not asked uh, we, would you like to take some coordination tests? He has said, now, we, now we're going to give you some tests. Would you come over here? Uh, there are lines painted on the floor. It is well lit. The videotape and breath machines are in place. He has given these physical sobriety tests as part of the uh, investigation. He's, the petitioner in their brief said that uh, as far as the implied consent law, that that was somehow to be fair to the defendant to make sure that he understood. But... Uh, Pennsylvania law currently is that for a valid test or a valid refusal to be admitted into evidence, uh, they don't need to show that the defendant understood what he was told about the implied consent law 
or that uh, his choice in either taking the test or not taking the test was knowing and voluntary. They merely have to show that they told that it was a legitimate arrest, they asked him to take the test, and uh, that they told him what the consequences would be if he refused. To uh, inter inter introducing what happened at the roadside? No, I did not, Your Honor. So uh, anything that, uh, any of the tests there were admissible? That, that's correct, because he was not arrested uh, until uh -huh. he was placed in the police car and, and, and actually placed under arrest. A, a, a case that uh, can be analogized to this case was the, was the uh, Court of Appeals case of United States versus Hinckley that involved the assassination of, or attempted assassination of President Reagan. Now, the FBI took Mr. Hinckley and, and for about 20 or 25 minutes asked him questions uh, concerning uh, where his parents lived, his address, did he have girlfriends, where did he work, how far had he gone in school, uh, those sorts of things. It was nothing even as overt as this case because it didn't have directly to do with the elements of the offense that he was charged with. Uh, but uh, the court uh, found that uh, since the uh, agents were aware that there was a likelihood uh, that there would be an insanity defense, the responses were inadmissible because uh, it was reasonably likely to, or the, the FBI was aware that their questions were reasonably likely to lead to an incriminating response. And that's the, exactly the situation in this case where I was, it's pretty close because you have uh, the officer at roadside who's testified that he observes odor of alcohol, bloodshot eyes, poor coordination, uh, trouble producing license and registration. <laughs> Uh, in fact, he told him to stay at the side of the road until he sobered up. Uh, according to the officer, practically every contact at the side of the road produced some sort of an incriminating response. And from that point on, law enforcement certainly should have known that, that whatever they asked Mr. Muniz uh, was likely to elicit an incriminating response. And, and then more of the same at the booking center. He, he can't even give them his address. He has to look at his wallet. He gets his age wrong. This is all before the sixth birthday question. Is it reasonably likely to expect that a, that a drunk driving suspect on being asked to perform these field sobriety tests uh, when he can't do them will provide some sort of an explanation which will end up being incriminating? If the procedure uh, is, in this case uh, is not construed by this court to be interrogation, I would argue that this, the privilege against self-incrimination would be substantially eroded. You can't expect a defendant who's upset by the arrest itself without counsel he does not know of his right not to have the conversation, uh, to make a choice based on the consequences of these seemingly innocent questions and instructions. Because the questions on their face to the defendants uh, are, are statistical and, and may, be, may seem to him to be to ensure he understood without being told that he has a right to remain silent or that whatever he says might be used against him. He has no way to know that he doesn't have to answer and that his responses uh, may be used later at trial to convict him. The statements during the testing, the, the so-called voluntary statements during the testing, he, could he have possibly have thought that he had to say those things? Well, I, I think most of the statements during the testing were, were, again, he was trying to show, to communicate that he was not intoxicated because he said things like, um, I can't walk this way even when I'm at home, or I can't walk this way even when I'm at work, um, or, or I can't, my legs are not so good. So there were things that, were, that he was trying to explain why he couldn't do the test that they asked him to do. Uh, in fact, on the video... Well, one, the, uh, the audio of all of that was excluded, wasn't it? it, it yes, it was. Yes. 
At one point on the video, he even said, he was told, well, we'll read you your Miranda warnings later. Uh, and he said, well, something to the effect of, I know you people are pretty fair about it. I mean, he, re he was relying on them to be fair with him in their investigation. He had no idea that, that what they were doing was gathering evidence from what he said uh, to convict him. And this uh, would not, if you... Well, he didn't think that the, the test he was given had some bearing on whether he would be held? He, he, may, he may have, but as far as his words, uh, I, I, I can't tell you. I, he wouldn't know without being told that, uh, uh, and especially his statement, I, I know you people will be pretty fair about it, is an illustration that he thought uh, that something else was going on. Well, it could just evidence. as well have meant he thought the police would not distort the results, they would be even-handed, not that they weren't doing anything to uh, build a case again. I, I suppose that's, that, that's another fair inference. Um, this, if the court would, were to sustain the Pennsylvania Superior Court, it would not uh, appreciably affect the way these booking procedures are done. Uh, the, the defendant can still be asked his name and his address and any other biographical information that they need, but if they don't read him as rights, they just can't use that part in evidence. Uh, and I would argue that uh, as far as whether or not it would make any difference if you did read the man his rights at the beginning, that, it, that in fact it would not. Uh, it's been my practice in, in Cumberland County since the time of this decision that now, in fact, they do read him as rights as soon as, as the man comes to the police station. And, and again, just from my practice, it, doesn't make any, it hasn't made any difference on whether the people say something or not. Is Cumberland County just to the west of Dauphin County? That, uh, you, you say you, you, you practice in Cumberland County, but you, your, your office idea is in Harris. They're very close. They're within, across the river is Cumberland County from Dauphin. Uh, the advantage, uh, lastly, the advantage of Miranda has always been its clarity, its bright line. The police, the prosecutors, the lower courts know what, uh, what must be done for questioning and in, under what circumstances statements are admissible. If you make an exception to the facts of this case, it's going to lead to a lot of litigation uh, with the end result would be an elaborate set of rules and exceptions and distinctions. And nobody, not the police, not the prosecutors, not the courts, are going to know uh, with any certainty as to any particular situation whether or not the interrogation is permissible. Uh, the ex if you allow the kind of conduct or, or questioning or, or the process that occurred here, um, you put a premium on the police devising these indirect interrogation methods, these tricky things of the sixth birthday question and other, other similar um, indirect uh, questioning. Uh, because the what happened at the booking center is actually, uh, if it actually incriminated and was just as deadly to Mr. Muniz as if he'd have been asked, are you drunk? And for all intents and purposes, his responses said, I am drunk. Uh, and I would argue that because the utterances disclosed the contents of his mind, his reasoning ability, that they were testimonial and protected by the Fifth Amendment, and since he was subject to interrogation without Miranda warnings, that the audio portion of the videotape was correctly ruled inadmissible. There are no other questions. I'll sit down. Thank you, Mr. Maffitt. Uh, Mr. Aiken, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you. May it please the Court. I would suggest that what the Court's being asked to do by Mr. Maffitt is to extend Miranda uh, to cover situations of custodial sobriety testing that it is not designed for and that instead of uh, the contrary, trying to devise a set of rights that an intoxicated suspect will understand that tells him he has a right to remain silent, except you've got to do these tests, would be completely unworkable. Because the tests are designed 
to get physical, demonstrative evidence. That's all they're designed to get. I suggest the present law covers that and covers it quite clearly. And Miranda warning should not be extended to apply to this situation. Unless the court has other questions, I'll go the rest of my time. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Aiken. The case is submitted. Tune in every Sunday from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on the bottom line with Joey L. on the new Evolution Radio Network. All right, that's what's up. We're back. Um, it was it was long, about 50 minutes. So um, you might want to go back, sit with it, dissect it. A lot of good information there. Um, next week we're going to go into the seventh and eighth amendment. Um, like I said, we're working our way up, and then um, before you know it, we'll be at the treaties, all right? Um, so go to makemorecommerce.com if you want to get with me, set up a consultation, any of those things. And please, if you know who, you know, if you know these people that come into the chat room with that negativity, right? Tell people to stay away from me with that negative shit, right? We, we don't need that. This is an educational platform we here to build. Um, you know, into line. That's what this is for, right? This is about remedy. Alright? I never claim to know everything. I know what I know. Right? <clears throat> but I, I'm definitely not going to argue with somebody about what I know. Um, but with that being said, man, I'm going to say peace to the gods. I will talk to y'all Friday. We'll be on Friday in the afternoon. Um, and I'll be back Sunday. Alright? So with that saying, we said peace to the guys. May y'all have a great week.